0: Hello and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. This is the third episode in our Christian history course, picking up the story in the year 1517. So far, we've looked at the early church in the Roman period, and we've done a thousand year slog from the sack of Rome to the morning star of the Reformation in the person of John Wycliffe. You're here now, so that tells me you didn't get lost somewhere on the way, and I'm glad you're here. So let's begin with a question, uh, one that you can ponder in the nanosecond, I will pause after asking it, uh, or one that you can ponder at greater length by pausing the tape. The question is this, what caused the Protestant Reformation? The most commonly cited event that launched the Protestant Reformation is Luther's protest at Wittenberg in Germany on October 31st, 1517. There, as pilgrims gathered to view some of the 18,000 holy relics amassed by Frederick of Saxony, uh, Luther nailed an essay to the cathedral door, uh, a common place to share academic papers. What began as a protest became a revolution. Luther was born in 1483 to a family on the rise, from the peasant class to the new middle class. He was the oldest of seven children and grew up in a household with a domineering and anti-clerical father who was also wildly superstitious. This was certainly not uncommon for the time, but young Martin seemed to get a double dose of pagan superstition and an irrational fear of God. His decision to turn to the church was largely to spite his father Hans. The severe and harsh life I led with them, he wrote, was the reason I afterward took refuge in the cloister and became a monk. There's another more dramatic reason as well. In 1505, while completing his master's degree in theology at Erfurt, uh, he began to feel overwhelmed by the fear that he would die and go to hell before earning his salvation. Caught one day in a sudden thunderstorm, he immediately vowed to become a monk. After two years in the Augustinian monastery at Erfurt, he was ordained it did nothing to alter his fear. In many ways, it increased. As he became more obsessed with good works, the good works required to earn his salvation, he became less convinced that it was something that he could achieve. He began to hate God. He felt he was a hypocrite, serving others, but primarily concerned for himself. This only made him more fearful of an eternity in hell. In 1510, his order sent him to Rome as a delegate in a dispute between Augustinians. Shocked by the immorality and false piety he witnessed in Rome, he returned to Germany and immersed himself in the study of the Bible. He received his doctorate in 1512 and accepted an appointment to the theology faculty at the New University in Wittenberg. His spiritual conflict remained unresolved. It was there, in the tower at Wittenberg, that the true Protestant Reformation took place. It was a revolution of the heart. The prompt, like our old friend St. Augustine, was reading from St. Paul. Here's the, the key verse, uh, Romans 1.17. For in the gospel a justice from God is revealed, a justice that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther was studying Romans and in a moment of recognition finally understood the true nature of God. He wrote, These words, just and justice, were a thunderbolt on my conscience. I soon had the thought that God's justice ought to be the salvation of every believer. Therefore, it is God's justice that justifies and saves us. And these words became a sweeter message to me. He grew up in a world where God's love and eternal reward were tied to behavior. Salvation was something you had to earn. Suddenly he saw salvation was something that God provided in love and not a product of human effort. Luther had been concerned with the justice of God that condemns sinners, when in fact the justice of God is forgiveness to those who accept it as an article of faith. He summarized this idea with the phrase, Justification by faith alone. We are saved by accepting the gift of God's forgiveness. All the good works in the world cannot earn salvation. These works are to be a grateful response to God's saving act. The road to Wittenberg and 1517 began in the Middle Ages with a unique fundraising effort. The church held that the soul must spend time in purgatory before arriving at an eternal reward. This time was determined by your behavior in life. The church offered indulgences as a means to shorten this penalty. Pay in advance to shorten your stay. The money from the sale of indulgences largely remained in the area where they were sold. They funded the clergy, church construction, and the purchase of relics to enhance local collections, which in turn increased visitors and resulted in greater offerings and the sale of more indulgences. The church economy was booming, and it happened based largely on fear. The true shift came when the church altered the rules to allow people to shorten the time in purgatory of the deceased. It became an even bigger business. The Vatican, which had always led the way in the sale of indulgences, became more aggressive. Special fundraisers spread out across Europe and their claims became more extravagant. Uh, Johann Tetzel, selling indulgences near the border of Saxony, suggested that even someone who violated the Virgin Mary could buy his way out of purgatory with enough money. Luther could not help but act. His 95 Theses, the document he nailed to that famous door, can be summarized as follows. Indulgences, he argued, distort the meaning of Christ's command that we repent, because to repent means to feel sorrow and demonstrate your sorrow for others. God's forgiveness cannot be purchased, it is a gift from God. The Pope had no power to forgive sin, he can only pronounce the forgiveness that God gives. To be forgiven and not repent of your sins makes the forgiveness worthless. People have been deceived, he argued. Indulgences are a fraud. Poor people would be better off buying food than a useless piece of paper. If the Pope truly cared for the people, Luther argued, he should use the power he claims to have to empty purgatory for the sake of love and not money. Indulgences fish for money. The gospel of Christ fishes for people." In short, he said, indulgences make a mockery of the church and foster deceit, immorality, and skepticism. He challenged anyone to refute his words. And the rest, as they say, is history. Luther was challenged by various academics and church officials and silenced through a series of bulls or pronouncements of the church, through all of this, he received the protection of Frederick, who may have had some sympathy for his views and certainly recognized the popularity of the articulate professor from Wittenberg. When Luther was finally excommunicated on January 3, 1521, uh, it hardly mattered to him. He felt secure in his position, and continued to expand his ideas through a series of tracts which, through the power of the printing press, were widely circulated. It was in this period that Luther published his most thorough attack on Rome. The papacy is not superior to the state, he argued, nor is the pope the only one who can interpret scripture. Through baptism, all are equal in God's eyes, and no vocation is better than any other. All Christians are priests and have equal access to God and God's blessing. There are only two sacraments, he argued, baptism and communion, and not seven, since only two sacraments were instituted by Christ. The Church should follow Scripture and pure reason in making decisions, not the dictates of the Pope. At the Diet of Worms on April eighteenth, fifteen 1521, he faced a final assessment of his thinking. I'm I'm sure just now you uh, spit out a mouthful of tea and said what? Uh it was a diet a church assembly held in the ancient german city of worms worms uh the diet of worms go ahead tell your friends so so luther reiterated to the diet that he would follow his conscience and the bible rather than their judgment and said one of history's most memorable statements i cannot do otherwise here i stand so help me god to conclude with luther i need to say that he is a complex character Luther stood for freedom and spiritual liberation, but instructed the princes to attack the peasants in revolt in 1525, the same peasants who were incited by his ideas and his challenge to authority. He was a rigid theologian, but wrote dozens of hymns. He was locked in controversy for years, but found time to translate the entire Bible into German. To summarize Luther's contribution, uh, we could say the following. Uh, one, justification by faith alone, essentially restating an, a biblical idea. Next, the priesthood of all believers in interpretation of Scripture and in access to forgiveness. And finally, uh, two sacraments, baptism and communion. The side effects uh, of Luther's program uh, could be summarized as follows. Uh, First, uh, Luther's alliance and protection from the state gave the state new control over religion and broadened the state's claim to absolute sovereignty over the people. It led to the principle that the religion of the state determined the religion of the people. And, it gave rise to the Anabaptist movement, Protestants, who rejected any kind of alliance between church and state. And his ideas spread. Reformers and their governments took up the cause of Protestantism across Europe. Uh, Zwingli in Switzerland, uh, Knox in Scotland, and Cranmer in England were among the heirs of Luther. Yet the mantle of Protestant leadership fell to John Calvin, the person we associate with the birth of the Presbyterian Church. Calvin had a greater role than Luther in the spread of Protestant ideas into France, Holland, England, Scotland, and of course his base at Geneva. French by birth, he was drawn to the newly Protestant city of Geneva to institute his ideas and create a model Christian community. For the last 20 years of his life, he led Geneva as a theocracy, a city directed by the will of God and by John Calvin. Calvin's key innovation in Protestant thought was to promote the idea of predestination, All are born sinful and depraved, uh, yet God elects a few for saving. Only God knows the identity of the elect, and so it is important that everyone live as if they were. Uh, Why God chooses some and not others is a mystery, according to Calvin, uh, known only to God. The thing which set Calvin apart from others was his insistence that the church and government be one, a theocracy, meaning literally rule by God. In this way, God ordained that Calvin should rule every aspect of Geneva's faith and life. Social control was maintained by a group of 12 elders who heard reports once a week of any moral infractions. Penalties included fines, excommunication, banishment, and death. Blasphemers, traitors, and adulterers were put to death. A child was beheaded for striking his parent. Every vice was banned, including alcohol, dancing, cards, the theater, laughing in church, coming late to service, and so on. Churches had no ornamentation whatsoever, and every ritual that hinted at Roman Catholicism was banned. Thousands of Protestant refugees poured into Geneva from across Europe. Calvin's influence and ideas spread throughout Northern Europe. Uh, Wars between Protestants and Catholics occurred in France, Holland, Scotland, and England. Through all of this, Calvin continued to refine his ideas and promote them. The concept of regional church government shared equally between clergy and laypeople, is his idea, a model enacted to counter authorities that defy the will of God. It's called presbytery, something that Presbyterian Church still uses as a basis of government. Efforts to reform the Roman Catholic Church in the face of the Protestant threat largely failed. While the founding of the Society of Jesus, Jesuits, increased piety and discipline in the Church and increased its influence in an expanding world, there was no change at the top. The Council of Trent, an attempt at reform, became a victory for the status quo, as every aspect of the faith decried by Protestants was confirmed. Religious wars, claims and counterclaims, and the general fatigue of the masses led to the next era of European history, generally known as the Age of Reason. Disgusted with the absolutist claims of the church, thinkers turned to the authority of reason and the idea that one need only to discover the natural laws that govern the universe to create a better social environment. Thinkers like Descartes, Newton, Locke, Voltaire laid the groundwork for a new development in religious thought, deism. Most deists uh, believe that God created the universe, wound it up, and then disassociated himself from his creation. Some refer to deists as believing in a God who acts as an absentee landlord or a blind watchmaker. A few deists believe that God still intervenes in human affairs from time to time. There's a few other ideas we associate with deism. God has not selected chosen people, either Christians or Jews, to be the recipients of any special revelation or gifts. Uh, Deists deny the existence of the Trinity as conceived by Orthodox Christians. Uh, They may view Jesus as a philosopher, teacher, and healer, but not as the Son of God. They do not believe in miracles or the supernatural, but rather a world that operates by natural and self-sustaining laws from the Creator. Also, a practical morality can be derived from reason without the need to appeal to religious revelation or church dogma. Generally, if deists pray, they do so only to express their appreciation to God for God's works. The reaction against intellectual deism was pietism. Pietism, which really takes hold in the middle of the 18th century, has a few themes we need to note before we meet the primary pietist of the age. Pietists believed in a morality based on biblical norms, a keen sense of guilt and dependence on God's forgiveness. They believed in personal conversion. They believed in urgency in prayer and personal devotions, concern for the vulnerable in society, the emotional use of hymnody, and intensive missionary activity. Pietism is associated with George Fox of the Quakers, uh, Count Zinzendorf, fun to say, uh, of the Moravians, and most directly with John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Wesley was born in 1703 in the manse at Epworth, the 15th of 18 children born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley. They were Anglicans, with Samuel leaning in the high Anglican direction, while Susanna was more pietistic, acting as both schoolteacher and spiritual guide to her children. She was clearly the greatest influence on the life of John and his brother Charles. John went off to Oxford to prepare for a ministry, and along with his brother Charles, formed the Holy Club, a group dedicated to prayer and mutual accountability. It was in this period that the group acquired the name Methodists for being so methodical. After Oxford, John and Charles were ordained and set out to become missionaries among the indigenous people of Georgia in America. He went largely to find himself and to experience a sense of peace in his heart, and he failed. The trip was a disaster, the low point coming when his Moravian hosts confronted him with the question, do you know Jesus Christ? John hesitated painfully and then answered, I I know he's the savior of the world. True, replied the Moravian, but do you know that he has saved you? Wesley, still anxious, could only say, I hope he has died to save me. As he reflected on this conversation, he discovered that the most significant learning of the trip had actually happened at the beginning. On his way over to America, John sailed with a group of about 30 Christians, known as the Moravian Brethren. And as they sailed, they unexpectedly ran into a severe storm. Wesley wrote in his journal of his terror of the storm, his great fear of death, he simply wasn't sure about the state of his soul. But when he looked at these Moravian Christians, he noticed that they gently sang psalms and had a sense of peace, even during the most terrifying periods of the storm. The great bravery and confidence of the Moravians convinced Wesley that they had something that he didn't. They really knew they were saved and secure before God, while John Wesley simply hoped he was saved. Back in London, he continued his search for peace. There, on May 24, 1738, he attended the meeting of a religious society on Aldergate Street. The reader read from Martin Luther's preference to his commentary on the Book of Romans, and at about a quarter to nine, while listening to the reader, John Wesley said that he felt his heart strangely warmed, and suddenly he knew that he really did trust Christ, and he was saved from sin and death. Wesley said, it pleased God to kindle a fire which I trust shall never be extinguished. After his conversion, John responded to the fire that burned within him and set out in his own words to reform the nation, particularly the church, and to spread scriptural holiness over the land. Like his friend George Whitefield, another great evangelist of the day, Wesley began preaching outdoors. He found it to be an extremely effective way of reaching the masses, and thousands of people dedicated their lives to Christ through Wesley's preaching ministry. Wesley then organized these new believers into classes based on the practice of the Holy Club at Oxford. They would pray and study the scriptures and remain accountable to each other. They excelled at charitable works and were in the forefront of causes such as labor reform and the end of slavery. Wesley, it should be noted, did not set out to form a church separate from the Church of England. However, with organized societies, preachers, and property, it had all the hallmarks of a separate church. By 1759, they were widely referred to as the Methodist Church. By 1784, after much frustration in finding a bishop to ordain his ministers, he did it himself. He began to designate Methodist bishops, and the church made a formal break in 1795, four years after Wesley's death. In his lifetime, Wesley traveled 250,000 miles, mostly on horseback, and delivered over 40,000 sermons. The movement expressed itself most profoundly in music, with hymns from Isaac Watts, John Wesley himself, and his younger brother Charles. Charles wrote a staggering 6,500 hymns and defined the hope of the movement perhaps best expressed in the last stanza of the hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to sing. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. I'm going to conclude here and urge you to Google Charles Wesley uh, and maybe listen to all of the hymn, Love Divine, if you don't know it. Next week, we move into the 19th century and conclude our look at church history in the late 20th century. Have a good week, and thank you for joining me.